Well, good afternoon, everyone. Today we're going to be continuing our study in the doctrine of redemption applied. And before we begin, let's first go to the Lord our God in prayer. Our most gracious and heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for this most blessed day that you've given to us. Thank you, God, for this time now that we get to spend in corporate worship studying your word. And Lord, what I ask is that first and foremost, that you may equip me to be able to clearly and articulately um, expound and convey the truths um, contained in your word, the truths as it pertains to how you apply redemption to us, Lord. Um, I pray, God, that you may grant understanding to all who are here and to all who are listening. And I pray, God, um, that in that understanding, it may bring about conviction. It may bring about um um, for those, Lord, who have not placed their trust in you, repentance and, and faith, O Lord. And I pray, God, um, that we may take the truths learned today and supply it to our daily lives. So, God, we thank you again for this time that we'll get to spend now digging in your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So, of course, over the last few weeks and months, you know, we've labored to talk and discuss an important topic as it pertains to redemption, how redemption first and foremost was accomplished, and then now how redemption is applied. So over the last couple of weeks, what I've labored to hopefully explain and articulate is the fact that the redemption that was accomplished through the work of Christ doesn't benefit us unless it's actually and effectually applied to us. And we understand that this is through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, how does God apply this is by what we have termed the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. And over the last few weeks, we have went over some of these acts in the order salutis, the order of salvation. Now, over the last few weeks, so just by way of review, that order of salvation that we've talked about. Again, remember, salvation not being a one-time act but a series of acts, a, a series of, of processes, includes our effectual calling, regeneration, our conversion, which entails repentance unto life and saving faith, what we'll be discussing today, justification and adoption, sanctification, both progressive and definitive sanctification, perseverance unto holiness, and glorification. All of these is what we mean when we talk about salvation. Now, a few weeks ago, we discussed effectual calling and basically what that was in that it was that work of God the Father, whereby those whom he had chosen before the world began in time and space. Now he draws to himself through the work of the Holy Spirit. And then we noted also in regeneration how that was that work of the Holy Spirit, whereby God takes that one stony heart, replaces it with a heart of flesh. He enlightens that mind that was once darkened in his knowledge. And then he takes that will that was formerly enslaved and in bondage to sin and frees it to embrace the gospel message itself. We noted how in that regeneration, when we look through the pages of the Bible, it goes by many names. You know, not just regeneration, but being born again, being made alive being a new creation. All of these terms convey the same idea of God's work of regeneration. And then last Lord's Day, we spent time talking about that next act, which is our conversion. 
And if you recall, we noted how in conversion, there were two acts that we're really getting at, repentance unto life and saving faith. Now, just quickly by way of review, when we talk about this repentance unto life, what we're talking about is when a sinner realizes the sinfulness of his sin and that it goes against the law of God and is sorrowful for committing that sin and hates it enough to turn from his sin and to turn to God and follow him. And we noted how in this understanding of repentance, you know, two things we do not mean by them. One is we're not just talking about mere worldly sorrow. Remember the aspects of, of repentance. One of the aspects in repentance is sorrow, but it isn't exclusively sorrow itself. We noted how in the Bible, there are many people who are sorrowful for sin, but yet never converted. Judas being probably the most prominent where he was sorrowful to the point of committing suicide. So repentance doesn't just involve sorrow. Nor is repentance to be confused with the Roman Catholic idea of penance, whereby we, for lack of a better word, and this is obviously isn't you know, the, the exact articulation of penance, but from a principle standpoint, the, the fact of doing certain acts so as to appease God. Rather, as we are to understand repentance, there are, again, three aspects to it. There's that emotional aspect. This is that sorrow that one feels brought about by a conviction of the word of God, showing them their wrongdoing. Then there's the intellectual aspect to where a person now changes their mind as it pertains to sin itself. And then there's that volitional aspect to now a person changes their course, their action, their purpose to now walk as God calls them to walk. But it's not just repentance that's included in the understanding of conversion, but also saving faith, or as our divines call it, justifying faith. And how our, um, our divines, the larger catechism in particular, defines saving faith or justifying faith is in this way. It is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the spirit and word of God, whereby he being convinced of his sin and misery and of the disability in himself and all other creatures to recover him out of his lost condition, not only assents to the truth of the promise of the gospel, but receiveth and resteth upon Christ and his righteousness, therein held forth for pardon of sin and for the accepting and accounting of his person righteous in the sight of God for salvation. And within this idea of saving faith, you remember there are three elements to it. There is first knowledge. We are not ignorant in those things in which we place our faith in. Faith is not ignorance, contrary to what many atheists, many secularists would like for people to think faith is. We do know what we believe in. But not only is it knowledge, but it's also an assent to the truth itself. So not only do you know, but you know and you know that it is true. But we know that it doesn't end there because guess what? Even the demons believe and shudder. There must also be trust as well. So you have knowledge, you have assent to the truth, and you have trust. All three is what's entailed and encompassed within the idea of saving faith. So that's what we've covered thus far. Today, we're going to be discussing the next two aspects within the order of salvation. Two objective realities itself in justification and adoption. Now, there is much as it pertains to our salvation that is felt or seen. 
You know, when we realize the state of ourselves, for example, and the need for a savior, we feel grief and sorrow. We feel the weight of conviction when we see God's standards and realize that we have fallen short at every point. We are joyful and ecstatic when we understand the work of Jesus in our redemption and how, if we trust in him, we can be saved. We have our good days as Christians where we feel confident because we're not struggling with any particular sins. And then we have our bad days as Christians where we are struggling. We feel like Paul in Romans chapter 7 where the good that I want to do I don't do and the good that I should be doing that's the very thing or should not be doing is the very thing that I am doing. Other people, as we grow as Christians, also begin to notice that change in us. Our demeanor, for example, is different. How we conduct ourselves is no longer the same. So there is some visible difference that other people see and can see when we become Christians. There is no denying in the order of salvation that there are some parts to the order of salvation that is visible, that is, sub that is subjective in a sense, from the standpoint meaning that people notice and can see some of those changes. That being said, there is also much in our salvation that is not subjective, but rather is objective, that can't be visibly seen, but is clearly stated in the scriptures. And what we're going to be talking about today are two of those objective truths, those objective realities, justification and adoption. Now, justification deals with our state before God, whereas adoption deals with our place within God's family. In justification, we understand that we are acquitted of our sins and declared righteous through the imputed work of Christ. In adoption, we are placed into God's family and get to enjoy the privileges that come with that. Both of these acts are not things that can be subjectively felt. No one feels justified. No one feels adopted. But these are objective truths that the Bible clearly states. So let's take a look at the first objective act, our justification. So our larger catechism in question 79 answers it in this way. They say justification is an act of God's free grace unto sinners in which he pardoneth all their sins, accepteth and accounteth their persons righteous in his sight, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ by God imputed to them and received by faith alone. In justification, God takes a sinner who, because of their sins, would normally be found guilty and therefore condemned before God, and through the work of Christ, imputed to them, acquits them, and declares them righteous. Unlike order, other acts in the order salutis, where in which changes, um, or excuse me, unlike other acts in the order salutis, which changes our inner condition, for example, like regeneration or sanctification, this act of justification changes our external state before God. Prior to us being justified in Christ by faith, we are all under sin and therefore guilty based on God's righteous standards. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Romans. We're going to be reading from Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. And this is what Paul writes. He says, what then? 
Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then in verse 23, Paul continues and says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Not some, not half of people. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And as we know, sin carries a heavy penalty. Death, Romans 6, verse 23. It is this work, however, of justification by faith in Christ that alters our state from that of guilt before God to now being acquitted and declared righteous. Now, there are many misconceptions as it pertains to justification. So I want to clear some of those misconceptions up before we move further. First, when God justifies us, we are not made righteous or infused with righteousness. Rather, we are declared righteous. So justification, to put it another way, is a forensic act. Now, what do we mean by that term forensic? You know, we tend to throw around words without defining them. So I, I certainly do not want to confuse anyone. So it's important for me to define what we mean when we say justification is a forensic act. So the term forensic means belonging to courts of judicature, used in courts or legal proceedings. So in other words, the term forensic has to deal with a legal proceeding. And when we call justification forensic, we are simply stating that we are dealing with the matter from a legal standpoint. So to, to help drive this home, to, to understand, again, what, what we mean in regards to this forensic act, this judicial act, there's a couple of passages of scriptures that I think will help to understand what we mean when we describe justification in this sense. Uh, the first is in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 1 through 2. Moses writes, if there is a dispute between men and they go to court and the, judge, the judges decide their case and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, then it shall be if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall then make him lie down and be beaten in his presence with the number of stripes according to his guilt. So if you note in verse one, Moses is indicating a matter that is brought before the court and decided on by the judges. Either the judges will justify a person or they will condemn a person. If a person is found righteous or innocent, they will be justified. In other words, the courts will declare them as such. However, if they are found guilty, they will be condemned. Or, in other words, the courts will declare them guilty. The courts aren't making them righteous. They're not making them guilty. Rather, they are publicly declaring that they are righteous or are condemned 
based on the facts of the case itself. And if you understand this, actually, there's a, there's a um, translation, Young's literal translation, which actually, in this instance, you know, translates this passage in a way that really indicates that. They say, or he writes, or I guess the translation states, when there is a strife between men, and they have come nigh unto the judgment, and they have judged and declared righteous the righteous, and declared wrong the wrongdoer. So again, it is a declarative act, not a making of a person to be righteous. Another passage that helps to clarify this is Proverbs 17, verse 15, where Solomon says, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them are like are an abomination to the Lord. So in this passage here, Solomon notes that a person who justifies the wicked is an abomination. So let's, let's think about this for one second. Because if this passage meant that a person who makes righteous a wicked person and that those per that person who makes a wicked person righteous is an abomination, then you can just say goodbye to evangelism at, you know, right then and there. Because who would want to do something abominable, such as make a wicked person righteous? What's more, Solomon, by implication, would be calling the Holy Spirit an abomination because it is the Spirit who conforms a once wicked person into the image of Christ. So clearly, when he says he who justifies the wicked is an abomination, he's not talking about he who makes a wicked person righteous, but rather Solomon is indicating in this passage that if a person is truly wicked and ought to be condemned, but instead is declared righteous, that is an abomination. This passage here, just like in Deuteronomy 25 verse 1, is pointing to justification being a forensic act, a declaration. One other quick passage, Luke. 7 verse 29 and when all the people heard him that is Jesus even the tax collectors justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John huh. now did the tax collectors make God righteous no ah, not at all obviously not so what were they doing in justifying God well they were acknowledging God as truly just they were publicly declaring what was in fact the case about God, that he was righteous. And there are many, many more passages that, that I can give, but I think these passages that, I'm, that I've just showed out here should show you the fact that the term justification, as used in the scriptures, does not convey a meaning where a person is made righteous or somehow infused with righteousness, like the Roman Catholics would say, but rather is declared as such. Now, hopefully, this helps to understand, and when we're dealing with God justifying sinners, we are dealing with a forensic act, a legal act, a declarative act itself. Now, it is also important that we understand justification in this forensic sense so that we don't confuse it with another act in the order of salvation, which is sanctification. You know, as we're going to see next Lord's Day, sanctification is that act where we are growing in holiness through the work of the Holy Spirit. Sanctification is not the same thing as justification. Now, you do not get sanctified without first being sanctified, but we don't want to conflate these two terms. 
And if you misunderstand justification, as oftentimes a lot of people do, you start to blend two different acts and confuse them as one. So moving on from, from there and that understanding, because we will talk about sanctification next Lord's Day. You know, in making the point that I mentioned earlier, in, the, in that justification is an act whereby a believer is declared righteous, it is important to understand that this declaration does not happen in a vacuum. Or in other words, God doesn't just declare us righteous apart from anything else being necessary for him to do that. And I say this because God is a just God. So we got to be very, very careful how we understand God declaring us righteous. Let's go back to what I actually a proverb that I just stated, Proverbs 17, verse 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both alike are an abomination to the Lord. So let's think about this. I mean, everyone who has been justified is not intrinsically righteous. Rather, we're guilty. We sinned against God from our first breath. And as such, we're supposed to pay for those sins. Now, if God just lets those sins slide, if God just declares us righteous when we are clearly not, we got a problem. God is no longer just. He himself has committed an act that he considers an abomination. So how does God declare people who are not righteous as righteous without compromising his divine justice? through the work of Jesus Christ. Colossians 2, 13 through 14. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So our sins were nailed to the cross. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He, that is God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Again, through Christ. And then Romans 5, verse 18. So then as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life. To all men. One act of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Whose act of righteousness are we talking about? We're talking about the act, the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. See, it was through the work of Christ in his, what we call his active and passive obedience, that we are able to be justified. He loved, well, God, because he loved those whom he had chosen, sent Jesus Christ to live a perfect life. In doing so, Christ proved to be righteous. God, knowing that justice must be executed, imputed our sins on Jesus for him to pay for, since he had no sins of his own to deal with. Or in other words, our sins were charged to Jesus. They were attributed to him. That's what we mean when we say it was imputed. It was charged to him. Also, because God is a God who is holy and requires those who are before him to be holy, the righteousness of Christ was imputed to us. Now, this is what we know 
um, what's known as in theology as the doctrine of double imputation. Our sins were imputed to Christ and Christ's righteousness was imputed to us. And it's through this act that God is able to declare us righteous without compromising his justice. As we see in Romans chapter three, verses 21 through 26, listen. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we see in this passage here how through the work of Christ, God is able to be both just and the justifier. And if this work of Christ in redemption was not done, either God, in order to remain just, would have to condemn us, would have to send us off to hell to maintain his justice. Or if God wants to justify us, he could, but then he would no longer be just. In order for God to be both just to maintain his justice and be the justifier able to declare us righteous. It takes the work of Jesus Christ. Apart from that, you do not get this work of justification. So again, we are not merely declared righteous, but rather we are declared righteous through the work of Jesus Christ imputed to us, charged to us. Now, Let's talk about another important component in regards to justification. In particular, how are we justified? We know who justifies us. We know on what grounds we are justified. But how do we become justified? Well, we receive that justification by faith. Romans 3 verse 28. It's pretty explicit. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. As I indicated last Lord's Day, if you recall, faith is the instrument by which we receive the justification brought about through the work of Christ. Faith is not the cause of our justification. It is not the grounds of our justification. When you read the Bible, you never get the indication anywhere that faith is the grounds for or the cause of our justification. The scriptures always make it clear that Christ is the grounds of our justification and faith is merely the means by which we receive that justification. John Murray makes a great point, I think, in his book, Redemption, Accomplished, and Applied. He writes this, the Bible speaks always of our being justified by faith or through faith or upon faith, but never speaks of our being justified on account of faith or because of faith. The Bible never makes the indication that it's because of faith or that faith was the grounds of our justification, but it does indicate that we are justified by faith. In other words, it is the means, the instrument by which we are justified. 
Now, we also got to make note of what we saw in Romans 3, verse 28, in that there is no work that we, one can add to faith in order to be justified. We are justified by faith apart from works. Let's continue on in Romans. Let's look at Romans now, chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. 2 through 5, excuse me. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He did not work and then it was credited to him as righteousness. He believed God. He trusted in God. And in him trusting in God, he was justified. Then we have Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. Paul saying this, We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Since by works of the law, no flesh will be justified. No flesh will be justified by works of the law. Now, some people may try to make the argument that Paul in this passage is only referring to circumcision or trying to maintain the Jewish law. And it is true that in the book of Galatians, Paul is dealing with Judaizers who are trying to get the Gentile converts to adopt circumcision and then by extension, the entire ceremonial law and Jewish practices. That is true. However, the fact that Paul may be addressing the practices of the Judaizers does not negate the principle by which he uses to refute them. The whole basis for Paul's argument is that a person is only justified by faith in Christ alone. There is no work that a person could do, even the old Jewish laws that could bring about their justification. You are justified by faith alone apart from works. The second you think that you can bring about works in order to be justified by God, you will find out really quickly that your works in the eyes of God are nothing but filthy rags. Isaiah 64, verse 6. But JP, what about James? Doesn't James prove that a man is justified by faith plus works? Yeah. Well, let's see what James actually says, shall we? Turn in your Bibles to James chapter 2. And let's look at verses 20 through 24. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? CJP, faith without works is useless. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? CJP, justified by works. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Ah, so maybe it's not by faith alone. Maybe it is 
faith plus works. Now, when reading the Bible, context is everything. So often, people make arguments about doctrine by ripping verses out of its context. What's the argument that James is actually trying to make here? Is the purpose of this argument he makes to demonstrate how a believer is justified? Or, rather, is the purpose of this argument to demonstrate how the faith of a person who claims to have faith is demonstrated? That's kind of important to know. Context. James is arguing against those whose so-called faith was merely a dead, cold, lifeless faith that did not bear any fruit. He is arguing against those whose faith was merely a verbal profession without any outward evidence of that faith. So in order to demonstrate what living faith actually looks like, he points to the example of Abraham. But note the period of Abraham's life that he points to. Because if you're paying attention, he's not pointing to when Abraham was actually justified. He's pointing to a period in Abraham's life many, many, many years after that takes place when he offers up Isaac, his son, on the altar. If you know your Old Testament, if you know the Bible, then you know when Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Was, was Isaac alive? Was he even born? No, he was not. This period in his life was many years after Abraham was justified. See, James, in bringing up this example, all he's doing is showing the reader how Abraham's faith was demonstrated. It wasn't merely by profession, but it was in his outward acts. That's what's demonstrated, what's showing the fact that he did truly have faith. It is not what justified him from the sense of salvation. Paul and James, Paul in Romans 4 and James in James chapter 2, are making two different arguments. So James isn't contradicting Paul by any stretch of the imagination. Matter of fact, James is helping the believer to avoid the trap that some so-called Christians fall into where their faith is merely one of words without bearing any fruit at all. Which actually brings me to the next and final point as it pertains to justification. The fact that we are indeed justified by faith alone, but as Martin Luther says, that faith is never alone. Although it is abundantly clear that we are declared righteous by faith alone through the work of Jesus Christ imputed to us, that does not mean that us being declared righteous grants us a license to sin. Our confession of faith in chapter 11, section 2, says this. Faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification. Yet it is not alone in the person justified but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. So see, justification, like we've been talking about, like we've been mentioning in the order of salvation, it is not just one aspect of salvation independent of all the other acts. You see, as we saw in Romans 8, those whom God called, he also justified. Those whom God justified, he also glorified. You don't get one without the other. You aren't justified without first being called by God, regenerated by God. You don't get justification without placing your faith in God. You, don't, you aren't justified without also experiencing sanctification and perseverance and glorification. 
So if a person assumes that justification grants one an unfettered license to sin, they don't truly know salvation. Paul said, or John says, excuse me, in 1 John 3 verse 9. Now one who was born of God, no one who was born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. So the fact that we understand that justification is a declarative act in which we are, again, declared righteous through the vicarious work of Jesus Christ being imputed to us, it doesn't now give us the license or the understanding that, oh, therefore, hey, we can sin. No, not at all. Like I said, we are justified truly by faith alone. But that faith, when we are justified, is never alone. Robert Raymond, I think, perfectly summarizes all that is meant in this doctrine of justification in his systematic theology when he describes it in this way. He says, the doctrine of justification means then that in God's sight, the ungodly man now in Christ has perfectly kept the moral law of God, which also means in turn that in Christ, he has perfectly loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and his neighbor as himself. Know what he says, in Christ. It means that saving faith is directed to the doing and dying of Christ alone and not to the good works or inner experience of the believer. It means that the Christian's righteousness before God is in heaven at the right hand of God in Jesus Christ and not on earth within the believer. It means that the ground of our justification is the vicarious work of Christ for us, not the gracious work of the Spirit in us. It means that the faith righteousness of justification is not personal, but vicarious, not infused, but imputed, not experiential, but judicial, not psychological, but legal, not our own, but a righteousness alien to us and outside of us, not earned, but graciously given through faith in Christ that is itself a gift of God, end quote. That is what we mean by justification. Now let's move on to the next objective act in our salvation, that is our adoption. Now while justification deals with a person's state with God, adoption deals with a sinner's place within God's family. Or to put it another way, while justification deals with whether a person is righteous or not, adoption deals with whether a person is one of God's children or not. Adoption is defined in this way in our shorter catechism. Adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the Son of God. In our adoption, we are brought into the family of God and we become one of God's children. John 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. 1 John 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and as such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know now, there are some people who would make the argument that every single person alive is one of God's children. We've all seen the bumper stickers. We're all God's children. And at face value, 
It may seem as though there might be some argument, maybe, for this universal fatherhood of God. Turn with me in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, verses 28 to 29, where Paul is talking to the unconverted Athenians in Mars Hill. Listen to what Paul himself says. For in him, that is God, for in God we live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said. For we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. So in this passage, Paul calls the unconverted Athenians children of God. Well, this seems to mean that even those who are not saved are God's children. Now, this is where we ought to heed the wise words of philosopher and Christian Gordon Clark, where he says this, it is possible to know accurately every word in a sentence without knowing the meaning of a sentence. And that's exactly what's going on here. Because upon further reflection, of this passage relative to other passages. Never forget the analogy of faith. Scripture interprets scripture. When you reflect upon this passage in light of other passages, for example, John 1 verse 12, which we read, to those as many as received him, to them gave the rights to be children of man. Or John chapter 8, where Jesus himself is talking to the Jews and says, you are not of your father Abraham, you are of your father the devil. Jesus in John chapter 10, where he, where he tells, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. You are not of my fold. John chapter 17, in the high priestly prayer, where Jesus says, I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me. Or Galatians 4, where Paul makes the point that there are those of the slave woman and those of the free woman himself. Or Hebrews chapter 12, where Paul or the author of um, Hebrews says, if you do not receive discipline by God, it is because you are illegitimate children. You are not really one of God's children. So we see a plethora of passages that is making a distinction between those who are truly children of God and those who are not. So Paul calling those Athenians children of God was clearly not meant to be in a salvific sense. He wasn't calling them children from the standpoint of they are one of his adopted children, but rather, as the context implies, if you just go back to verse 24, he is indicating the fact that all humans come from one common person. That is God, that he created all of us. And in this sense, he is our father. He is the source of our being because he created all of us. When we talk about being the children of God in the case of the doctrine of adoption, we are not referring merely to God creating us, but rather us being placed salvifically into the family of God in order to enjoy the blessings involved. So in other words, the word father is being used in two different contexts. So again, when we're talking about father being adopted and him being our father. We're not talking about him merely as a creator who created us because that is true for every being, everything that God has created. But we're talking rather from the sense of salvation itself. 
Now, when God adopts us into his family, we get to enjoy privileges that we didn't have before. Now, you know, in our modern day and age, you know, the word privilege gets kind of thrown around a lot and used almost like a curse word. Ugh, you got privilege. Uh, you're just talking in your privilege. You know, when we hear people talk about, for example, white privilege, the advantage that white people receive for the mere fact that they are, were born white in a white environment. Now, as I think all of you know, I despise, I hate the term white privilege. But I will admit this, there is privilege that is out there. But see, we as Christians get to enjoy that privilege. See, the difference between that ridiculous concept of white privilege and the reality of Christian privilege Christ's privilege is that our privilege is not tied to skin color or wealth, but rather to our adoption. We being placed in the family of God, we get to enjoy the privileges of that new status. This was unearned by us. We weren't privileged because of wealth, because of looks, because of ethnicity or knowledge, but rather God in his unmerited favor adopted us into his family. And if you want to be humbled, and realize that, hey, it wasn't because you were the cream of the crop, as the world calls the cream of a crop. Just read 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 31. Because Paul says quite bluntly, for consider your calling. Imagine a, imagine a pastor saying this in regards to his congregation. For consider your calling, brethren. Not many of you were wise, according to the flesh. Not many of you were mighty. Not many of you were noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame, to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and justification just as it is written. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It wasn't because you know, you were the smartest person, you had an IQ of whatever, 200, 300, whatever, I guess the highest IQ a person can have. It wasn't because you were the best look looking. It wasn't because you were most popular. No, not at all. God chose the weak, the foolish of the world to shame the wise. So that God gets all the glory. Now, what are some of those privileges that we get as adopted children? Well, the first is that we uniquely receive the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, verses 14 through 17. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. And in Galatians 4 verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his sons into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So we, being the sons of God, receive the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we now have access to the throne of grace with boldness. Anytime we have a request, or a petition. We, as adopted children, we know that we can go to God and he will listen to us. 
We don't have to be shy about going to God. We can boldly, confidently go to God. You know, as a dad myself, you know, when I think about this, I think about Noelle and how whenever she wants to talk to me, she will just come up to me and talk to me. If I'm at home in my home office working, she will come in the room and talk to me. Even if I put a sign that says, please knock, she'll knock and then open the door and come and talk to me. She isn't afraid to come and talk to her father. Likewise, we don't need to be afraid to come and talk to God. He has time for us. We are one of his children. Ephesians 3, 11 through 12, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. 1 John 5, verses 14 through 15, this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked for him or from him. And then Philippians 4, verse 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So we get God, not only as our father, but now we can come to him with boldness, pour out our petitions, our requests to him. He does not hear, common to many misconceptions, he does not hear the wicked, but he does hear his children. The third privilege that we get, we get God's protection from spiritual and temporal evils. King David writes in Psalm chapter 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamped around me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of all of this, I shall be confident. And we as Christians way too often forget who exactly is on our side. We get so scared and overwhelmed when disaster strikes that we forget that God is with us. Oh my gosh, did you hear what's going on? Did you hear what the Supreme Court is going to do? Oh man, did you hear that we're going to have more persecution? Oh no, I'm terrified. I don't know what's going to happen now. It's crazy. We get, we get so caught up on the size of the giant that we forget that we have the giant slayer on our side. Solomon writes in Proverbs 3, Verses 25 through 26. Do not be afraid of sudden fear, nor of the onslaught of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from getting caught. See, when God adopts us into his family, we get God as our protector. He will guard us from both spiritual and temporal dangers. Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you, God, are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Psalm 121, verse 7. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. 
Proverbs 14, verse 26. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence and his children will have refuge. Now, does that mean that sometimes disaster won't strike? Or sometimes the enemy might have a short-term victory, a momentary victory. No, these things will happen in the sovereignty of God. But we never need to be afraid because guess who is on our side? God. Man cannot do anything from, to us apart from the will of God. And at the end of the day, God gets the ultimate victory. And you know what? We being his children get to share in that victory. Like David says in Psalm 37, it is the righteous that inherits the land, not the wicked. The fourth privilege that we get being God's children is God's provision for all the things that we need, both physically and spiritually. Psalm 34, verse 8 through 10. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger. But they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Anything we need, God will provide for us. Now, I said need, not want, because sometimes we sinfully want things that God knows that we should not have. But those things in which we need, God will provide for us. We don't need to stress where our necessities will come from because God will take care of all of that. Which is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 33, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to your life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God will provide for all those things that you need. That is the blessing, the benefit that we get is having God as our father. The fifth privilege that we get that some might not see as privilege is God's fatherly correction of us when we go astray. Proverbs 3, verses 11 through 12. My son, do not neglect or reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Some Christians may not see God's discipline as a privilege, and yeah, I get it. 
Because sometimes God's discipline hurts. It's hard. It sucks sometimes being having to be disciplined by God. But see, that discipline that we receive from God is meant to conform us to holiness. For all of you who are parents, when you discipline your child, what is your motive behind it? Are you doing it merely because you want to inflict pain on your child because you love to see your child cry? No, absolutely not. You inflict that discipline because your desire is for them to be corrected from the wrong that they are doing. The correction that you give, that you place on them is for their good. You're doing it because you love them. Matter of fact, if you didn't care for them, if you didn't love them, you wouldn't be disciplining them at all. Matter of fact, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, verses 7 through 8, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So if you don't receive discipline from God, guess what? You are one of his kids because God will discipline you. So, fifth privilege is, in fact, being disciplined by God. Because guess what? If you receive God's discipline, loving discipline, you will not have to worry about enduring his eternal wrath in hell. And the sixth privilege, now there are many other privileges, but we'll just end it here. The sixth privilege that we receive, being one of God's adopted children, is that we get to inherit the promises as heirs of the everlasting salvation. Now, this is probably the greatest privilege of all, because we are heirs of eternal life. We will get to dwell in the new heavens and new earth forever. We won't get tossed into hell to experience God's wrath. Rather, we're going to be welcomed into paradise and get to enjoy the bliss and fullness of God's love forever. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. In him, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. And then 2 Corinthians 1 verses 21 through 22. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our heart as a pledge. We get to inherit everlasting salvation, eternal life. We get to reign with Christ forever. We the despised and rejected of this world are in Christ and have God as our Father. We, the hated of this world, are loved by God. We, the often ignored and overlooked in our culture, we're heard by the God of the universe. We, the ones who receive hate by the world, but we get to receive God's love and the Holy Spirit. We, who many times lack access to many of the things of this world, we have access to the throne of grace. We, who many times inherit nothing but trouble in this world, we get to inherit the entire earth when we reign with Christ. See, when you have Christ and you understand the value of that, 
you don't care at all regarding any other so-called privileges. I love what Paul tells us about his own experience in Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 through 11. I want you to listen to what Paul says. He says, starting in verse 2, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrews of Hebrew. As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is found in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. So we see Paul here. You know, he's listing his status as a Jew and the so-called confidence that one might assume that you might have being part of this privileged class. You know, what Paul lists here would be akin to someone saying today that they were born a white, cisgender, heterosexual male to a rich family with generational wealth. To a Jew in that day, for Paul to be all that he lists here would be to be considered part of an elite group, a privileged group. Yet Paul says that he counts all of that and all the privileges that he may get from that in this life as BS for the sake of gaining Christ and the true privilege he attains from obtaining Christ. See, we as Christians have far better privilege than anyone else. The privileges of this world are superficial and don't mean anything. People nowadays are so caught up in these so-called privileges that certain groups have and are angry when they're not receiving those privileges. The only true privilege that we ought to be concerned with is the privilege we receive from being in Christ Jesus. Every other type of privilege is rubbish, is BS, and does not matter. See, this is why David says in Psalm chapter 37, he says, Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious towards wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. Don't focus on it. For evildoers will be cut off, 
but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in the abundant prosperity. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart and their bows will be broken. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. Again, better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of the wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their inheritance will be forever. It won't end when they die. It will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil. And in the days of famine, they will have abundance. But the wicked will perish. And the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not pay back. But the righteous is gracious and gives. For those blessed by him will inherit the land. But those cursed by him will be cut off. So who's really privileged here? Let me ask you that. Is it those who are not in Christ? Those who may have millions of dollars, all the status and acclaim that this world can bring? Or is it those who are in Christ? I mean, let's not forget the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. In this life, who received good things? Was it not the rich man? Was it not he that was wealthy, that was privileged, that had all the status and acclaim? And was not Lazarus the one who was poor, ignored? Yet, when they died, who was with God? Who? was dwelling in righteousness, who was enjoying eternal life, and who was the one who was suffering and in pain. So who really is privileged? Who would you rather be? You want to get your good stuff now? Enjoy life and privilege now? Only to enjoy, to endure torture and hell forever? Or would you rather Know and understand that, well, I got Christ. I may not get all that I may desire in this life materially, but I know that I have an inheritance that will last forever. Who's truly privileged? What privilege should you be focusing on? The world standards? Or the privilege that you have in Christ? So let me bring all of this to a close. As I hope you can see in both our justification and our adoption, those whom God draws to himself and regenerates, upon them repenting and exercising faith in Christ alone, they are justified and adopted into God's family. This aspect of the ordo salutis is objective. It's not subjective. You don't feel justified. You don't feel adopted. You are justified. You are adopted. If you have trusted in Christ, God has declared you righteous. Your sins were imputed to Christ and Christ's righteousness was imputed to you. Your debt has been paid for in full. With that debt canceled, 
you also get to enjoy the benefits of having God as your father. You get to enjoy all the privileges that come with being one of his loved children. You enjoy a life of real privilege, privilege that won't end when you die, but privilege that will continue when you rise up from the grave. Now, although our status has been changed and we are in God's family, our salvation is not yet complete. There are still other acts that God's performed, God performs upon us while we are still alive. Sanctification, perseverance into holiness, and eventually our glorification. And we're going to deal with those acts in our last two lessons. But for now, I want you to rest in the fact that if you are in Christ, and if you have trusted in Christ for your salvation, you don't need to worry at all. Christ has dealt with your sin. You don't need to think, oh, I must do this, I must do that. No. If you have trusted in Christ, if you have rested in him, Christ has paid it all. If you have not trusted in Christ, but rather in your mind, you're thinking, well, you know, in order for me to really be right before God, you know, I got to do all of these different things. I got to do all these works to prove to God that no, 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 I deserve to be here. No, I am good. Stop. You don't need to worry about performing works to merit anything before God. Matter of fact, your most righteous acts, again, Isaiah tells us, it's but filthy rags. Trust in Christ. Trust in the work that he performed. If you turn from your sins and place your trust in Christ and not in yourself, God will cancel out those sins of yours. And you too will be able to be a part of his family and get to enjoy all the privileges that come with that true privilege, Christ privilege. Let us now go to the Lord our God in prayer.